just like new. <sighs> I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode. Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, hello. I hope y'all are having yet another phenomenal week. I'm so excited to share this week's conversation with you. For our final episode on the ChatGPT installment, I spoke with Dr. Monty Johnson. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and is also an author penning Aristotle on teleology. As I continue to explore this space in education, something that comes up again and again are these definitions. What does knowledge mean? What does truth mean? What is our relationship with it? And often it feels that our beliefs towards these concepts are not something that we ourselves came up with, but it's something we simply derive from the people who came before us. And so to actually have meaningful discussions around education, I find that we have to understand the context and the societies in which these original ideas even came from. And so I was really excited for this conversation because I wanted to understand how the philosophies of the ancient civilizations impact our relationship with education, knowledge, and the world around us today. This conversation was also really personal for me because Dr. Johnson was the professor who helped me find my passion for philosophy when I took his class on Hellenistic philosophy at UCSD. This conversation will be split into two parts. In the first, we will discuss Dr. Johnson's unique grading policy, the concept of failure, the purpose of knowledge, the difference between training and education, and the role education plays for the society and the individual. In the second conversation, we dive into ChatGPT, what artificial intelligence looks like, and the limits of knowledge. I wanted to start this conversation by understanding Dr. Johnson's unique approach to grades. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here you go. It's actually a pretty traditional idea, I think, in in education. And I think I was exaggerating slightly to say, you know, A or F, um, but it's it's close to that. So because I base my assessments, my assessments of individual projects, individual papers, individual exams, pass or fail. So in other words, a student either you know, lives up to my expectations or meets my standards or checks off those rubrics, in which case they pass, or they don't, in which case they fail. And the key to the success of this kind of thing is thinking it out well in advance what the expectations are and what outcomes you're aiming at in teaching the class and making those crystal clear to the students ahead of time. Uh, So this results in having something like a 15-page syllabus that lays out a step-by-step process through which the student, by completing all of those steps, you know, could earn an A in the class. And what I actually do is have a number of components, let's say five modules in the class, and you can earn a lower grade. You could be happy with a B or a C if you choose to complete less of the modules. So I put it in the student's power to, oh, if you only need a C or a what we call a P here, a pass, no pass, if you're taking that grading option, 
if you're only aiming for that grade, then you only need to complete three modules. If you're only aiming for a B, you only need to complete four. But if you're aiming for an A, you must complete all five of them. And the completion of each module is, again, graded on a pass-fail basis. So the main reason for doing that is because I was becoming very frustrated in my grading with this idea of partial credit. So a student that has not done any of the relevant reading or given much thought uh, to what's being taught, if they're linguistically competent and skilled at taking tests or writing papers or plagiarizing them or whatever, um, they can hand something in and then I'm supposed to give uh, e even if it's not very good, I'm supposed to give them some credit for it. Well, it's not that good, so I'll give it a B or a C uh, or a D. Um, but very rarely, even if it's a very bad paper under that traditional A to D grading scheme, do you actually fail people, even if they are not, you know, learning anything, even if they're not uh, meeting the standards or living up to your expectations, you still give them a passing grade and then they sort of take that and that's all they want or that's all they need. And so they go on. And, and basically, it's a waste of everyone's time. They don't learn anything. I don't teach anything. And nobody's uh, sort of happy with it. So I, I was not happy with this partial credit system. And what I wanted to do is identify what exactly I was trying to teach students to do. And if they succeed in learning those things, then I give them full credit for that. Uh, and if they don't succeed in doing those, I don't give them any credit <laughs> for learning it. Um, and But then I do put it into their power to um, decide how far they want to take the material. So some of some of my students do want to just, you know, get a minimal overview of the history of philosophy or something like that. Uh, and they don't necessarily want to go deep into researching and, and creating their own uh, knowledge about it. Uh, but I have other students that want to take it much further and actually want you know to try to advance the research in the field. And so I structure a class so that both kinds of students can be accommodated and they all have to live up to some minimal standard in order to pass the course, but they can decide how much effort they want to put into it. And it's more or less um, obvious because it's set out on a basically a checklist on the syllabus what, it, what one needs to do in order to, to get an A. Hmm. One thing I hear you saying, and I think is really important and something that took me a long time to learn, is introducing failure into education. I think a lot of times when we always strive for an A and that is what we receive, we start to believe this sense of aversion towards failure, like, oh, I, I can't fail. I will always succeed in my life. And it's only as you try newer and harder things do you realize I'm going to fail every time. The, the big thing is to learn from every failure. And so often I feel this importance to actually failing is not really incorporated into our education. And so do you feel like the system that you present and other things kind of enforce that a little better? Well, yeah, for one thing, students want different things out of classes. And that's mm. just a fact. And we should recognize that and not pretend, for example, that they all want to be philosophy PhDs or not assume that they all just want to get a degree and they don't really care about the content. Some of them very much 
care about the content and that's that's why they're there i have students taking my hellenistic class because they're obsessed with stoicism for example it has nothing to do you know they, they may be um cognitive science majors or they might be physics majors or math majors still they want to take that class for that reason so that's that's one thing is that students have different goals and therefore student success depends on different things for different students um and you know as a teacher i want all of my students to succeed if possible and that's and i want them to exceed as much as possible and that's why i will give every one of them an a if they earn it i mean i would also fail every one of them if they failed to do it that's never happened but uh but it's you know in theory possible now um again failure has to be possible otherwise success is not possible uh so there if you're gonna if you're gonna teach someone something teach them a skill for example how to conduct research how to write uh an abstract something like that um then you have to teach them the difference between doing that well and not doing it well um uh, and uh, to go back to a kind of ancient way of thinking about education one of the most ancient ones plato's right that education is basically making people making students love good things and beautiful things and making them hate bad and ugly things uh and it's has to do with you know inspiring or even arousing this desire and affection in them to go towards those good and beautiful things and make them part of themselves and to and to reject the bad and shoddy and uh, ugly ways of doing things. But if we don't, if the teacher doesn't have a clear distinction between what's good and bad, what's um, beautiful and what's ugly, then it's not possible to, to guide a student and inspire uh, that love of the good and hatred of the bad in them. So uh, we have to, there, there has to be in my view a, a fact about these matters and one has to grasp them to the extent possible in whatever domain or field that you're teaching in and make it clear to students that there are these differences there are better and worse ways of doing these things and make them want and have a desire and even love to do to do the good things and to do them mm. do them better so um, that is a Sorry, continue. No, no. So go ahead. No, I was going to say like that. I think that was a really profound definition of of what education should be that you know, I, I have not heard yet. And so this what I'm curious about understanding is when you talk about developing that desire for good, a desire for beauty, what is the role of the teacher in that? How, how do they bring that out of a student? Well, um, I think it I think it begins by meeting students where they are, as I've already said a little about bit about and finding out what they want out of the class, what they're trying to get. Now, as I've said, this can differ for different students. And so this kind of teaching requires actually knowing students. Um, in Plato's view, you know, the, the guy who put forward this theory of education, it, it requires a lot more than knowing them. It actually requires loving them to some extent okay you have to you have to want these good things to happen 
to them. You have to want them to ha to desire uh, beautiful things. You're, you're not just indifferent. They're not just people sitting there in the room. They're your friends that you're trying to do, trying to help in this way. So that's the first thing is figuring out what students actually want, and what they're trying to get, and then helping them get that. And in the course of getting that, um, showing them good and beautiful things and making them desire and love them. So they want to know how to how to write in abstract or write a report or something. And in teaching them that, you're actually teaching them to love writing grammatically correct and elegant uh, sentences and uh, to write with clarity and concision and things like that so that they love that and enjoy that. And then they've actually learned something. Now they now they want to do that and it becomes part of them and it grows in them. And it's something they can do on their own without the teacher. And so really the, the, the teacher is there is just to kind of, you know, take the first steps and show them how that kind of thing is, is even possible. Also, the teacher, I think, provides a kind of model for this. So, yes. you know, often I have I have students commenting that um, commenting in evaluations and that sort of thing is that they just saw that there was a way of taking these readings very seriously or taking these questions very seriously and that there's a, a method of looking into them and uncovering and more about them and understanding them in a deeper way that that's that's kind of an awakening for them to see that uh, to see how somebody could do that and how somebody could make these these important and then doing that themselves. So, um, I mean, for me, education is a lifelong process. And one of the reasons why I've pursued a career in education is so that I could continue to educate myself in a way that I could continue just to to learn in a university um, forever. For as, for as long as I'm around. And so what I hope to show my students is how I'm doing that, how the things I'm teaching them um, about are actually things I'm interested in learning about and trying to figure out. And I just show them the processes by which I try to figure those things out. Here's mm -hmm. how I would approach that question. Here's how I would try to interpret that text. And really, so I, I'm not I'm not giving them answers. I'm not filling up, um, you know, leaky jars or anything. I'm I'm, I'm just uh, saying, here's a difficult problem. Here's a way that we could analyze the problem. Here's some ways that we could we could look in look at it from different perspectives, look at how different sources throughout history have handled it, or whatever, and really take the problem seriously, and really uh, try to make some progress in understanding it ourselves. And so that's that's really sort of learning alongside them. And I very often learn from my students who are doing this. And I'm, and I'm also very, very careful and eager to acknowledge when that happens in the classroom. Again, it's incredibly gratifying thing as a teacher. You're learning something from a student and acknowledging that is inspiring, not just for that other student, mm. but for for other students. Oh, we can we can teach him something as well you know yeah so and, and so one thing i really want to understand and i think being in the policy space sometimes when we think about changing education for example it seems like such an overwhelming task because our 
fundamental understanding of what education is is not what we're actually focusing on. We're trying to we've built an entire system based on a shared understanding of what it should be to some extent. And we are only building on top of that, not actually questioning the foundations of it itself. And so one thing I'm really excited to speak with you about is understanding how the beliefs of Aristotle and Plato and all these ancient philosophers have impacted the way we even view knowledge and education today. And so if you were to speak a little bit, I mean, I know we could talk about this for years, but if you were to kind of speak a little bit on what their beliefs were on the purpose of knowledge, why do we need to know things? What would they say? Well, um, I mean, first of all, I, th I think there's a couple of different dimensions of your question, and I want to address one of them right away, which is, you know, why talk about these ancient people? You know, there's modern people that have views on this, or we could just talk about our own views. So why why go back to Aristotle and Plato on this? Why go back to the ancients on this is the actual question. Why go back to ancient philosophy, ancient Greco-Roman philosophy, ancient Chinese philosophy, ancient Indian philosophy, etc.? And I, I think we do need to reflect on the fact that, first of all, a huge amount of the population of the world uh, live lives that are basically informed by principles and uh, ideals and so forth that were written in ancient texts that came either just before or in a lot of cases just after the 5th century BC when philosophy was being invented in these various places. Um, so, you know, um, Islam and Christianity uh, came along a little bit later in Judaism, but these are all ancient worldviews, okay? Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, uh, and then various Greco-Roman philosophies that people in various ways are still living, you know, skepticism, stoicism, Epicureanism, uh, these kind of things. So. I think that if, if, if you really understand and look at this history, you realize our whole world is saturated with ancient concepts and ancient worldviews. And, and to really understand it, you've got to look into the, into the history of those concepts and those worldviews and why those collections of beliefs have been combined in the way that they are. And incredibly influential on, you know, Western ways of thinking, Western science, Western uh, art and so forth is the Greco-Roman tradition, and um, you know basically above all Plato and Aristotle. So that's that's kind of a, a reason for looking into Plato and Aristotle's view on them because none have been more influential than them, and these are still the ideas and philosophies that essentially rule the world. Uh, the um, same thing goes and the exact same motives apply to studying Confucianism uh, and Buddhism. Uh, and so, by the way, this is sort of a side note. In my view, this is the entire future of philosophy is basically comparative philosophy, where we learn more about philosophy by comparing Greco-Roman views with Indian and Chinese and um, other sorts of views. But now to get... So that, that's why, why look at the ancients. Why go all the way back to the ancients? Now, Plato and Aristotle. Um, I've already mentioned a little bit about, you know, one of Plato's definitions of education. And I want to point out that both Plato and Aristotle talk most extensively about education in works that are devoted to politics. So Plato's Republic, 
is a book about politics, and that contains his most elaborate discussion of education. And Aristotle's most sustained discussion of education comes again in his work entitled Politics, okay, the um, seventh and eighth books, especially book eight. Okay, so first and foremost, education is a political issue, at least as it was originally framed by these authors. So when you talk about your interest of the podcast being in education as it relates to society and the individual, the starting point for thinking about it with these influential ancient authors is thinking about how it relates to society and the larger political structure. Okay, now for Aristotle, within this context, the purpose of education is basically to create informed citizens so that they can perpetuate the kind of political system that politicians want sustained. Okay, so the in an oligarchy, the purpose of education is to um, spread ideas about the superiority of wealthy people and the importance of the priorities of wealthy people and, and the rich and to maintain the rich and the wealthy in power. That's the purpose of education in an oligarchic uh, regime. In a democratic regime, uh, the purpose of education is to get as many people possible as possible, as informed as possible, because the idea behind a democratic form of government is that all of these people, or many more of them, you know, including the poor, are going to participate in the deliberation, decision-making that happens in political forums, in courtrooms, and so on. And the idea is that if we're going to have all these people making decisions, contributing to the decision-making, then we better make them well-informed. They better understand what's what's going on and be able to think for themselves. Otherwise, we're going to get very bad results. So, you know, it, it depends on if we care about sustaining a democracy or not. But supposing we care about living in a democracy and we care about sustaining a democracy, well, then we really better be concerned about free public education. Okay, making sure as many people are as well educated as possible, because the extent to which we fall short on that is the extent to which we're going to have bad decision making, bad inputs to the decisions we're making, including decisions about going to war, about taxes, revenues, all that sort of thing. You know, so so the first thing I think the background of all discussions of education is this political one. You know, what kind of regime are we trying to perpetuate? Here, and if and if we at least have the conceit that we're living in a democracy, then we need to be serious about how we are giving free public education to get as many of these people who are allowed to participate in this political system as informed as possible. So, but my my students are often shocked when I say this that you know the the reason this university, this public university that I work in, is here is not really is not to get you a job. Right? Not so that you yourself become a fulfilled, inspired individual or somebody that, that gets a job and so can support your family and that sort of thing. That may be what you think you're here for. But the reason why the public has paid for all this stuff to be here is not so that you individually succeed, but so that the society succeeds. So that you're not um, 
so that you don't remain in the state of being uneducated, being being stupid, being dumb or whatever, so that you can't uh, you can't contribute constructively and positively to the decisions that are being made. And so in, in this sense, this whole situation we have going on with, you know, the, the kind of crisis of truth and propaganda and and uh, problems with the news, problems with the media, problems with conspiracy theories and all that is a massive failure of public education. I mean, it's an alarming indication that we're not really keeping this, we're not really perpetuating this democracy because we're not putting enough focus on the importance of educating these people so they are not able to contribute constructively to this uh, the society. And so that's the cause of the problem. And so then that's the solution to the problem is uh, improving uh, education in that way. So I think by now I've, I've commented on the ancient concepts of education from both of the directions that you're interested in. From the standpoint of society, the purpose of education is, is to perpetuate a certain kind of political regime. From the standpoint of the individual, it's to come to to love and desire good and beautiful things and to and to hate and be repulsed by ugly and bad things. To have one's um, destiny not merely be one's biological and natural endowment, but to reshape our natures, reform our natures so that we're more capable of producing things, doing things, and above all, thinking about things in a way that will make us not only happy people ourselves, but contributors to a uh, prosperous society in which all these other people can, can flourish as well. I think as of this date, I feel like that, thank you. That, thank you. That was, I feel like the most, yeah. Wow. I'm, you know, I, I think one of the places where a lot of discussions can happen and, and I want to first talk about the, the society element that you talked about. We, we diff- use this word informed. And I think a lot of people will then, that's the main question of like, what does informed actually mean? And I think the types of things that people need to learn to become informed differ from time and place and, and even where the tech is at at that moment and understanding how to use those things or navigate those spaces. And so what 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 does an informed citizen look like? What, what does it mean to be informed? Yeah, I noticed uh, in an earlier one of your podcasts with Victoria Thompson, she was really calling into question this idea of, you know, whether producing informed citizens should be a concept of education or should be one of the main goals of education. And, you know, rightly, she expressed skepticism because how do you how do you decide what's um, informed? And some people will say, well, being informed simply has to do with the STEM disciplines or something. And humanities isn't actually part of the information uh, that's relevant. Um, So I think, you know, that's a pretty good point. We do have to look at what we mean by being informed. But I think that rather than avoiding that problem and just coming up with a different definition of the purpose, the political purpose of education to to shape or form citizens in a way that allows us to sustain a certain kind of political regime. um, Instead, we should we should actually look at the substantive question of how we want people to be formed and reformed and informed. Okay, and by the way, that 
you know, this notion of form is an ancient idea, okay? And, and it's not a mistake that we're talking about information, formation, reformation. This is exactly the ancient way of, of talking about this kind of thing. Now, let me give you two contrasting ways that you can, can form someone. And I, I introduce this as a traditional comparison between training and education, okay? Training, like job training, is basically forming or shaping somebody else's mind in order to carry out the ends, to carry out the other person's ends. Okay, so I, I want you to be able to um, work this piece of machinery in order to move bricks from one end of the uh, field to another. And so I teach you how to do that. And that may be a very complicated thing that has to do with working uh, machinery and driving and lifting and all kinds of complicated things, it doesn't have anything to do with your own goals or purposes in life, okay? You you at best have an accidental interest in those bricks actually being moved over there to, to build that factory or, or whatever. Um, but training is the idea of shaping or forming, informing a soul so that it can carry out somebody else's ends and i look at education as by contrast as being the object of shaping or forming or informing someone's soul so that they can carry out their own ends and that includes their ability to reason about ends ends themselves what are the ends what am i what am i trying to do in life am i trying to earn money am i trying to get pleasure am i trying to do uh, noble or virtuous actions? Am I trying to contemplate and just know things? You know, what what are the various ends that are possible and how should I value them? And then um, what skills and kinds of knowledge, sciences, and so forth should I learn in order to bring those ends about? Okay, so that is that is a fundamental difference is we have to we have to figure out whether we're talking about you know what philosophers would call a, a heteronymous activity of shaping informing reforming somebody's soul to carry out uh someone other than that person's ends mm. like an employer a corporation or whatever it is and this doesn't necessarily have to be nefarious i mean there are there, there are perfectly good skills that you can be trained to do certain kinds of um, jobs. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a bad thing when you replace the concept of education with training hmm. so that all all education just becomes instrumental towards other people's ends, towards economic ends or corporate ends or basically any ends other than the ends of the person who's being educated. Whereas education is about, you know, the autonomy of the individual to deliberate about their own ends, set those ends, and then figure out the means to them. Well said. So I have a question. So as a society is the one that funds an education system and actually educates its students, what I'm curious is, is if humans are freely, in your definition of education, capable of choosing their own ends for themselves, what happens when that's 
unaligned with perhaps what the society wants or society expects. And issues are formed because of that. Is there some form of, you know, because I think about my education and, and subliminally the way history was taught, I feel like there were a lot of lessons that were kind of subliminally pushed on me based on way, ways things were taught. But that was for a particular reason, either to increase a certain sense of patriotism. And, and that seems like a goal that a, a society should want, perhaps. And so if we were free to come up with our own means or our own uh, ability to, you know, kind of critique that, perhaps we wouldn't be as patriotic as the way it was taught. So how do we know that if people were truly educated in that sense, it would be beneficial for a society? Well, um, whether it would be beneficial for a society depends on what we mean by society and what we mean by benefit. Mm. Um, and okay. so, for example, if your only concept of benefit is economic benefit, then your entire concept of education may be about training, hmm. training people to be productive, training people to carry out these tasks that result to the to the end of economic uh, productivity. Um, so we have to figure out what we mean by uh, by benefit. Now, in in my view, um, it's critical to freedom and autonomy that people, students, in the context we're talking about, freely choose the ends that they pursue. So if they if they want to live a life devoted to pleasure, uh, you know, as long as that's not interfering with somebody else's life, uh, that's fine. They ought to be able to choose that goal. Uh, they ought to be able to think about it. And they ought to be taught means for attaining it including, you know, distinguishing between real pleasures and fake pleasures and what really is the most pleasant possible thing uh, and, you know, and, and, and hazards of certain kinds of pleasures and all those things. If they, um, if the, the concept of benefit, you know, the goal that they have is being a more virtuous, better person or a noble person, then um, taught what the virtues are, how they differ from each other. Uh, how they're similar, how they relate to knowledge, and how they may be um, attained, um, even even how you might sort of train one to get it done. Um, if the concept of benefit is that I know more, that I have knowledge, or that I'm able to think better or contemplate about things, then students ought to be able to set that goal for themselves, and then they they should learn um, the best way of going about that. So I don't have a monolithic conception of what the um, ends for mm. every individual are. I have my own substantive views about what things are the best, um, but I don't think they should be imposed on other people, and I don't think I should impose them on my students. But I think that if they um, freely choose them, uh, then first of all, they will be more motivated to learn because mm. they will perceive that the means that they're learning further their own goals and not somebody else's. So they have, as it were, an intrinsic motivation to learn instead of an um, external or extrinsic motivation. Uh, so that's one thing is it just makes teaching and learning more effective if students are aware of their own goals and how what they're learning uh relates to those 
Um, now, but I think you were constructing a situation where, you know, somehow their ends or something would be inimical to the kind of society we have. And I don't I don't really see that as being realistic just because of how human nature works. So I think that we can actually reduce to a fairly limited set of ends what really motivates people. So as I've said, you know, some people are motivated by pleasure, some by virtue or political nobility of some kind, others by contemplation, life of the mind, science, that sort of thing. Now, there are some confused people, like business students who are often in this horrible state of confusion where they think that the end is, their end is making money. They think what they want to do is make money, which is, Aristotle points out, isn't an end in itself. It's merely an instrument for getting one of these other ends that is intrinsically valuable. There's no intrinsic value in being the richest person in the world or even having a little bit more money. It depends on whether that can be spent to get something that actually is itself valuable, something like pleasure, virtue, or knowledge. So, you know, that's one thing you have to sort of explain to those students is that you have an incoherent thing here that actually isn't an end, it's a means, and you're pursuing it as if it's an end, but you need to be get clearer about what your actual ends are. And then, for one thing, that might change the entire direction of what you're trying to study. Like you might not waste your time in business school anymore uh, and do something else like learn learn about political virtue or learn about some kind of um, science or something. But um, even if it turns out that, well, you just, you have a concept that the really valuable thing is pleasure and having a lot of luxuries and so forth, uh, by being clearer about that, you will be more motivated and have a more coherent approach to learning the things in business that you need in order to bring those other um, ends about. So, but I don't, I don't think that it's much of a problem to think that people will somehow um, abuse knowledge or abuse wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom are the kind of things that the more that we have of them, the better. They aren't like these other things, like tools or instruments that can be used either for good or bad. They always are good. They simply are good. Um, and we never say, oh, that person has way too much wisdom. You know, that's a problem that they have too much wisdom or they have too much knowledge. They know too much about science. That isn't really a problem. There is a problem that they have too much money or they have too much political power. Uh, those can be problems, okay? But having intellectual virtues is not a problem. And therefore, um, I, don't, I don't worry that by teaching people things, including the means to getting whatever ends they freely choose is going to uh, result in something bad. I think it only can improve, mm. improve them. I think you brought up an interesting point there. And so I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. So I feel like this is something that I've noticed in my life and, and I've seen some of the people around me as well in that for the people that I, I feel like are a little bit more, con who, who contemplate more, sometimes it can be dif difficult to actually make a decision at all. And it's kind of easy to just keep being in that state of let me get more knowledge, let me get more knowledge, let me get more knowledge until I can finally make a decision. I've heard a lot of people talk about this with parenting, that no one feels like they're ready to parent. 
And at some point, you just have to fully commit and be like, well, I'm never going to know everything to possibly know to make sure that I'm doing a good job. So I'm just going to have to, like, at some point, just commit. And so when we think about that in relation to knowledge, and you said knowledge can never be harmful, I think sometimes it can be in when the pursuit of knowledge is is endless and you kind of get lost in that in itself, where if there was some, you never actually act on anything. And so I guess what I'm asking is, it, is it always beneficial to value knowledge as much as we do, I think, in, in our understanding of knowledge and education? Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think one of the keys to unpacking this is when you said, you know, endless knowledge. Um, and if, if there if there was such a thing, it would be a problem because it wouldn't have an end. It would be somehow pursuing knowledge, but you don't really have an end. You don't, it's not because you want wisdom or want to understand something. And once you've got that, you're satisfied or because you want to be able to do something better or because you want to be able to make something better. But if you really had no end, whatsoever the end wasn't even knowledge itself then that would be kind of kind of incoherent i don't i don't really it's it's hard to envision how a a, a human could could do that because in, in in my understanding humans are you know motivated by these ends these goals these purposes that they have um now uh so this is we have to look at the various kinds of ends that knowledge can have, and we need to um, begin by thinking about those ends. So some kinds of things we want to know just for the sake of themselves. Okay, called Aristotle calls these theoretical sciences. Okay, things about God, you know, theology, things about mathematics, things about natural science. We want to know about them whether they make us able to make things or do things better or not even if they don't result in anything other than the knowledge itself we still want to know it so mathematical thing we still want to know why the interior angles of a triangle add up to the sum of two right angles even if we're not going to build a bridge or something uh based on that it's just something we want to know we want to know whether the cosmos is infinite or limited whether it has an origin in time or doesn't. Even if that doesn't result in anything else, we just want to know that. And some people, you know, cosmologists and so forth, physicists are motivated to try to understand that, not because they imagine technological spin-offs or that the discipline of doing science makes them more productive people or anything like that. They just want that kind of knowledge. And so that is a fully legitimate thing to pursue knowledge for its own sake, not only fully legitimate, but <clears throat> It's probably the highest goal that a human being can have, depending on how you conceive of, of human beings. But it's not the only end that knowledge or science can have. So science can legitimately have as an end making something, producing something, or doing something, some kind of some kind of action, uh, like producing um, health and reducing disease is a very legitimate end of science, that we want scientific knowledge about public health or about the human body so that we can reduce suffering, reduce disease, and increase health. And so we keep that goal ever before us in the sciences, the productive sciences that are oriented towards that, like medicine. 
And if we start just talking about, you know, theoretical medicine that has no application to actually improving or enhancing uh, health or reducing disease, then we're really talking about something else, some, mm. some kind of um, theoretical pursuit. Similarly, you know, a practical science like um, how to make money or how to govern people or something like that, um, we have as a, we have certain ends, you know, better government, more law and order, more happiness and prosperity. And so we have to start from these ends and we have to figure out, we have to, we have to treat the other things as means towards those ends so that they do have an end. And then we avoid the problem you were talking about, which had to do with endless knowledge that I just keep learning for some reason, but it, I, I never reach a point of satisfaction because I set out on doing this without a clear view of what mm. my ends are. We have to, we have to, if it's going to be coherent, we really have to start from these ends and figure it out. And I think, I think that helps us avoid the problem. Now you're really talking about, you know, people delaying decisions um, because they, they feel they need to investigate the matter more. Um, I mean, under a certain description, that's a very positive thing to do. They're, they're, if, the, if you're not confident in, in acting, then maybe you shouldn't. Maybe we should do more research. Um, in, in this sense, I'm, I'm a skeptic, and I, I really advocate and try to spread skepticism among my students. Keep investigating the thing. Even if it seems very, very clear to you, keep looking into the matter as if it's not in order to get a clearer view on it. And it's actually better to suspend judgment about things that we don't understand and not act on them than it is to act hastily as if we do have uh, some kind of knowledge. I, I really like that point you talked about ends. And I think, you know, to wrap this up, my, my last question for you is, I think one of the most difficult things I've learned after coming to policy school is that we have not had a single class or conversation where everyone's discussing what they believe the ultimate end or virtue is that they think about all their policies from. We haven't really even discussed that of like what, for you, what does a utopian society look like? And so when we haven't really come to a shared consensus of what the right, quote unquote, right end is, how can we really have any of the other conversations? And so even with education, I mean, let's say you have 100 people in the same room who all believe that education should have a different end. I mean, how do people communicate or how do we come to a consensus when when that occurs? Well, it begins with having the conversation and you're quite you're quite right that it perhaps doesn't doesn't always take place. And we don't tend to reflect on these kind of things um, unless we run into annoying philosophers that are that are asking about them. Um, but yeah, it begins by actually raising the issue. Like, what is the point in having a um, data ethics policy? You know, what 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 end are we looking for? You know, we're looking to promote certain kinds of ends like greater privacy or greater security or whatever it is. If we don't set those ends out from the beginning, then we have the problem you mentioned before, an endless discussion of means that cannot come to an end because we, we haven't... Um, we haven't even made it possible to reach an end. We haven't even conceived of or set before ourselves an end. So what, what most people do is just sort of go with implicit ends or not very well thought out ends. Things like acting that, you know, for the sake of happiness or something like that. Something 
ill-defined and nebulous that it's true that you know all of our actions relate to happiness or prosperity or those kinds of things but what do we actually mean by that so i think it'd be very productive you know in in your local context to say um you know we have a data policy institute here let's have a discussion of of goals um are we merely trying to understand these policies because it's interesting to us how data policies work um probably that's not why most people are doing it you know probably most people think no we want to improve it we think we've got a problem here that that this policy could be better and that it could be fairer and privacy could could be enhanced and security could be enhanced and knowledge could be spread more evenly and things like that um so you know most people don't have a merely theoretical approach to policy although that's it's possible just to study it in its own right you know the history of it why you know how it was originally conceived uh, that sort of thing um but most people probably do have goals they're just not very clear but if they tried to articulate them i think it would change their priorities of what they want to learn and get out of the program because it would focus their mind on what means that is what skills they need to acquire in order to bring those kinds of ends about and then certain other things appear much less important and other things appear then more important and so i think that that's that's a very good example of how we just kind of plod along assuming there's a goal we very rarely assume you know very rarely are we nihilists and assume there's no point in this activity we're doing we're just doing it or we're just sort of automatically doing it most people don't think like that they assume there's some goal but it remains very unclear and we're so used to deliberating about means to ends and not about the ends themselves that um we just sometimes skip it all together or leave it to philosophers to figure out and i guess you know as we're wrapping it up you know that's that's the main thing i think again returning to to what i want to teach my students i want my students to become cognizant of what their own goals are and to be able to articulate and explain them i want them to be open to the idea that there are other goals and other ends that they could have and then i want them to focus on the means and the skills towards the goals that they take seriously and set for themselves autonomously and you know that's that's my sort of philosophy of education in a, in a nutshell and that brings us to the end of our conversation i wanted to first say a big thank you to dr johnson for being on the podcast i am so excited for the second half of this episode which will be released next week I think this conversation, and I hope to have many more like this, really helps me create a base for what the purpose of education is. We spend all this time trying to come up with policies and improving education, but we haven't really discussed and agreed upon an end in which our education serves. And so for every other person I speak to on this platform, people bring up new ends to what education should serve. And when that's a state of discourse, how can we possibly come to an agreement and move forward? 
And so I think this idea of first discussing the ends for education in itself first is really, really crucial. And I wanted to say thank you all for listening. I've been getting so much support and feedback recently, and I really wanted to just say thank you all for riding with the re-educated platform. And as per usual, stay re-educated. I'll see you next week.